Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. The plan for new police recruits in Ontario is getting panned. Sounds like the revamped Ontario place is going to cost us a lot of money. New condos are coming to the Corktown neighborhood. The reenactment to the Battle of Stony Creek is making a comeback. Boomers are the happiest workers. And can the Leafs finally get to round two? The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. I'm in effort to boost the number of police officers in this province. The Ford government plans to scrap plans to mandate the post-secondary education requirement for new recruits. Uh, we focused on this uh, in our poll question yesterday. Should the education threshold be higher for would-be police officers in this province? And most of you said absolutely. 76% voting yes, 24% said no. Uh, in addition to that, what is going to be the impact on policing going forward? Dr. Greg Brown is an adjunct research professor and contract instructor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Carleton University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Brown, good morning. How are you? Good morning, sir. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Should this move be seen as progress or just a necessity to get more boots on the streets? Well, I would be with your 76% of poll respondents. I'm I'm not convinced that this is a, an appropriate idea, and I'm not sure it's absolutely necessary. So I'm a little skeptical. I'm wondering how this came to be in this era where most uh, academics and most practitioners at the leadership level are insisting that police officers do more, be, have more credentials, be more qualified. Uh, it sort of flies in the face of that uh, trajectory. Yeah, there's a lot of people, uh, opposition politicians, others connected to this industry who are uh, among the mind that, you know, this is going to water down uh, the the education requirements and thus the police officers that are f eventually going to be on the street. So you know, let me ask you this way. Is this going to put pressure on the police college, whether it comes to education and or training? Well, it should. Uh, you know, the police college is... Uh I, w I was a, a police officer myself. I've been retired for a few years, so I went through the Ontario Police College several several decades ago. But but the police college is designed uh, as a quick um, training. It's very practitioner oriented to to get officers ready to go out on the streets with a coach officer. It's not really designed to address a lot of issues that people are are wanting to have our police address these days. We often hear talks about de-escalating and police interactions with people with mental health challenges and we want police to be better trained, have better tools to deal with those circumstances and police college isn't really designed to do that. I can tell you I was in some discussions with some other faculty at, at my university, Carleton, just a few years ago looking at not not only um, improving the, tra the education of would-be police officers but actually implementing a four-year Bachelor of Police Sciences degree program that would be designed to give a sort of holistic training to would-be police officers. And there was quite an appetite for that, a joint venture between universities and community colleges to give would-be police officers a much more well-rounded education. As you said, you've gone through this. You've been an officer in uh, in uniform. What does it take for someone to become a police officer? Is it is it too easy well, it's not easy. Um, I mean, historically, there was a massive um, backlog of potential applicants, and so the police could be very choosy about selecting, uh, in an ideal world at least, the, the best candidate um, to, to do the job. I think, I think where I'm coming at this from is that we're asking more and more of police officers. Uh, 
writing a search warrant is now essentially requiring an officer to have almost a law degree. You've got to keep up to date on current precedents. You've got to write very well. These things are obviously scrutinized very intensely when it comes to trials. Other professions, I, I think of nursing, teaching, th those require a university degree. Um, policing seem seem to be heading in that direction, certainly in the United Kingdom. That's the way that they went. Uh, and now this seems like a very significant step uh, backwards. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dr. Greg Brown, a professor at Carleton University. We're talking about uh, the education requirement for new police recruits in Ontario. Uh, Mohawk College, for example, offers a police foundations course. Are programs like that one going to disappear or will there be maybe a heightened uh, awareness and, and affection to enroll in that to get those, that kind of background info before getting into police college? That's a good question, and it's one I've been pondering since this news came out a few days ago. I, I don't see community college programs across Ontario having any uh, reversal of those type of programs, the Police Foundations program, or people interested in pursuing that um, college degree program. But but what I do think is, is going to happen is that eventually, uh, at least taking the, the government at its word for the, the reason for this uh, this change, Eventually, the standards will be lowered if there is such a uh, shortage of, of potential applicants to, to the police. Policing used to be a very sought-after position, and the community colleges were full. I still think that in the present, um, young people that want to go into policing will want to bolster their chances as much as possible. And on your CV, if you have a community college degree, a university degree, that should put you in an advantageous position over somebody that... Uh, simply has a high school uh, diploma. But what the government is saying is there's there apparently a shortage in some major Ontario police services of these people um, that have those credentials, and so they're lowering the educational uh, threshold. Do you think this move could potentially impact the diversity of police recruits in Ontario, either from a positive or negative sense? It could. I mean, I've done a lot of research in American policing as well as Canadian, and that's often uh, the way that this is framed. A lot of major American metropolitan police departments have lowered various standards for education, physical fitness. Um, there's one, I forget what it was, it was down in Florida. There's one that's uh, dropped the no criminal record uh, standard. They're giving applicants that have a minor uh, criminal past a break on that to allow them to be applicants and of course the criticism is always that you know you're selecting not the best candidate when you start to reduce standards uh lastly and we got about a minute are other provinces do they have different educational requirements or thresholds not that i'm aware of each each um police um, entity across the province has their own internal training i've noticed that's a big trajectory in Ontario, certainly the major police services, the OPP, the Toronto Police, the Ottawa Police, have, in addition to the curriculum at the Ontario Police College, their own internal training. In other provinces, my perception was that they were going sort of the way we were looking in Ontario to not reducing the educational standards, but actually uh, improving them and, and requiring more and more education of our of our prospective police officers. Dr. Brown, great chat. Thanks for joining us this morning and uh, have a fantastic day. My pleasure. You as well. Thank you. Thank you. That is uh, Dr. Greg Brown, professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Carleton University. Obviously not a big fan of, you know, scrapping this mandate, or at least the plan, to mandate post-secondary education requirements for new police recruits. Certainly a story that we're going to keep an eye on in the years ahead. 
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You've heard all about Ontario Place, or maybe maybe a little bits and pieces here and there. Let's break it all down for you, because there is a there's a lot of criticism that is being thrown at the Ford government for its plans to redevelopment uh, redevelop Ontario Place and move the Ontario Science Center to those grounds, the the, the grounds of the now shuttered uh, tourist attraction, and. You know, part of the criticism is how much is being spent and, and why is there a 95-year lease for uh, one part of this, uh, what is going to be a revitalized facility on Toronto's waterfront? And, you know, one of the critics out there is the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, which is an organization that's fighting for you and I. They want to make sure our tax dollars are being spent accordingly. Let's bring on Jay Goldberg from the CTF, who joins us here on GMH. Jay, good morning. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Good morning. Great to be with you. Doing well. Part of the problem here is we don't we don't see we don't know a lot of the details of this uh, proposal. Yeah, I mean the problem is the Ford government. I think could win over the support of taxpayers if they simply were transparent. Uh, Infrastructure Minister Kinga Serma, when they announced that they're moving uh, the Science Center to Ontario Place said that the government had done a business case analysis, that it was actually cheaper to move the facility than to fix up the facility that is uh, presently being used. And so if that truly is the case, the government should release its business case analysis, show taxpayers that this is a more affordable option, and frankly, the CTF would be completely on board. The problem is less than a week after the infrastructure minister promised to make those numbers public, the government is now saying they will not share those numbers with the public, which to me indicates that the business case analysis doesn't look all that good. Yeah, it clearly shows that they have something to hide. What do you suspect that something is? Well, frankly, I suspect that something is the cost. I think, you know, uh, it's pretty, it doesn't really pass the smell test. The idea that somehow it's cheaper to build a brand new facility than to fix up the existing one. I mean, we know uh, usually... Uh, you know, if our homes need repairs, for example, uh, you usually don't tear down the whole home and build something else. And so, uh, you know, the government's out there saying that the present science center, it's dilapidated. That, were, that was their words. It's falling apart. Well, look, tourists are still going there. It's still going to be open even under the poor government's plan until 2025 at a minimum. And so, you know, if it's really falling apart, you've got to question, okay, well, why are they allowing the facility to stay open? And, you know, all that leads you to conclude is that there's gross exaggeration on the part of the government. I'm also not a big fan of a 95-year lease. That is a long time. Considering, you know, 95 years ago, Jay, it was 1928. uh, And a lot has changed in 95 years. And a lot can change in the next 95 and probably will change in the next 95 years. Your thoughts on that part of this deal? That that kind of a deal should never be part of a, a deal that the government is signing on to. You're committing literally four or five generations of Toronto taxpayers uh, to that. And uh, I think it's the wrong thing to do. And I think a lot of people look up at the 407, the highway where the Harris government gave a private company a 100-year contract to run it. And I think a lot of people would have liked to see that highway, uh, you know, be public to help with traffic flow like the 401. And so, you know, governments can make deals uh, in the short term. We're still stuck, for example, with a lot of contracts that had to do with the Green Energy Act. Uh, and we're going to be stuck with that for a number of years, and that will keep hydro rates high. So it, it really doesn't make sense, and it's not fair for governments to commit taxpayers 
for almost a century to, to some kind of policy position. You brought up the 407. Would that be a revenue generator for the province if we still had it? Uh, it, it depends. It depends if the province would still want to put a toll on it. But, uh, you know, they signed the lease to the private company uh, that, frankly, the city's not getting all that much for it. Uh, or Sorry, the province isn't getting all that much for it. And if, if the province had been running it uh, and it could have stayed open to the public or the fees were lower, it might improve traffic flow and it may not have... Uh, it may have generated more money for the government in terms of revenue. But, uh, again, this was a decision that was taken. That was a, uh, a, a decision that was committing us for literally 100 years. And so I think that was the wrong call. And I think any kind of commitment that's 95 or 100 years is the wrong call. I agree with you. And it seems like your dog is agreeing with us as well. He's not a big fan of this deal, uh, too. Jay, appreciate yeah. your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Jay Goldberg is with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And I'm, I'm sure the dog was like, no, WTF, we're not doing this. Well, apparently uh, we're going to go down this this road. And, you know, especially for those in Toronto, city council is going to make a decision either way on this on this facility. And it sounds like the Ford government is going to come in with the hammer and say, well, we're just going to have you know, our, our own minister zoning order and we're going to change things around just like they did with, you know, the Greenbelt lands. And the decision that we made here in Hamilton to not expand the urban boundary. Here comes old hammer-wielding Doug Ford once again. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is some exciting news. You'll recall that there was a company that acquired a heck of a lot of the Stelco lands, 800 acres of Stelco lands, and really our waterfront in the north end is going to be absolutely transformed in a few years. Well, this company, Slate Asset Management, is at it again, although it's uh, there's a little bit of a twist to their latest project. It is the first condo project in Hamilton's Corktown neighborhood. Brandon Donnelly is the Managing Director of Development at Slate Asset Management and joins us now on... Good morning, Hamilton. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning, Rick. Uh, tell us about the Corktown East Tower. Yeah, I mean, this this is a really exciting project that we we actually started before uh, this, the waterfront lands that you just described. This is something that we've been working on since 2017. And so we're getting ready to launch the first phase of the project, which is Corktown East. Uh, we'll be launching at the end of next month. So is there a Corktown West as well? There is. That's going to be the second phase, uh, it's, which is a mid-rise building, uh, and that will be launching uh, later on. But Corktown East, which is a 27-story point tower, is our is the first phase. All right. So when are sales going to begin? And has ground already been broken here? Yeah, sales sales will begin uh, at the end of next month, so May, uh, and ground has not been broken. So typically, we will launch sales and pre-sell a number of the of the condominiums and then start construction. So construction is is planned for uh, you know the end of this year or early 2024. Okay, and completion would be 2028. Wow, that's a long time. It is it is a long time. It is a long time. So, uh, in terms of prices, we know that uh, house prices, condo prices have shot up over the last number of years. What is the price point for Corktown East? Yeah, I mean, we, we're still finalizing all of the prices, but we will be launching with uh, with suites starting in the 300,000s. So the the idea here is to make uh, the project as affordable and attainable as possible while still being luxurious. So we're fully aware of, of the, the Canadian landscape and the pressures around affordability. And so we're trying to, to uh, start the pricing 
in a way that uh, that addresses that. Brandon Donnelly is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. He's the Managing Director of Development at Slate Asset Management, uh, launching the uh, first condo project in Hamilton's Corktown neighborhood, which brings me to that question. Why the Corktown neighborhood? Uh, you know, I think it's it starts with why Hamilton. Um, obviously, we're making we've made two significant investments in Hamilton. Uh, so for us, this is a broader commitment to the city. We love Hamilton. Um, and I think for us, it, it has all of the ingredients that we really look for in, in development projects. You know, there's a walkable core. It's connected with transit. There's new investments in, in transit that are coming. Uh, there's this wonderful stock of historic buildings. There's a vibrant arts and culture scene that's getting, that's getting better each day. So for us, we're, we just, we love Hamilton. We're very excited about the future of the city. Um, and this is our our commitment to it. And in terms of the architectural design of these uh, two towers, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. is it going to be in line with what the neighborhood's all about right now? Uh, you know, I'd say it's a blend. So it's it's there. It's a clearly it's a modern it's a modern approach. It's modern architecture. Uh, we're working with a firm called Core Architects, and what we've tried to do is is really do something that's contemporary, but something that also blends in with the neighborhood and addresses. You know materials that already exist in the neighborhood, such as such as bricks, um, colors, that, uh, textures that we can find. So it's really about finding a, a blend and something that's that's forward looking, but also addresses and looks towards the past. The acquisition of the Stelco lands released 800 acres of it, and, then, and that is a phenomenal project that is really going to revolutionize and revitalize that part of the city. W- was this a natural progression to condominiums, or w- was that always kind of in the back of your mind? You know, well, like, like I said, this the Corktown is a project that we actually started before, and, and these things take time to go through the rezoning process and get and get ready. But for us, it's you know we look at it as as housing and then employment. You know, so the the, the Stelco lands on the waterfront have the potential for up to 20, 23,000 new jobs um, as we build out up to twelve million square feet of industrial uh, space. So for us, it's it's job creation, it's economic development, and and then housing as well too. So. You know, it's it's a city building strategy. It's it's looking at the different pillars that that make up a, a great city. Slate Asset Management, obviously, in the acquisition game, are are you eyeing more areas of the city to put down roots, build condos, uh, build other structures or facilities? <laughs> I'd say nothing specific right now, but we're always looking. Well, and that's not a bad thing because Hamilton, as as you uh, are clearly understand, is a happening place. This is a good place to you know b- build these buildings that are going to house people and going to put people to work. Exactly. That's exactly right. Brandon, appreciate the time. Good luck with this. Uh, We'll certainly uh, follow it as it uh, progresses. Thanks for having me, Rick. Brandon Donnelly is the Managing Director of Development uh, with Slate Asset Management. As you heard, a couple of story, a couple of uh, condos uh, coming to uh, the Corktown neighborhood, Corktown East, 27-story tower, uh, Corktown West, uh, which is going to come a little further down the line, 14 stories, a little mid-rise building. There's going to be some retail space at the base of these condos, which seems to be the popular way to go, bring uh, amenities that we're all used to and uh, that we all cherish in our communities right to your doorstep, basically. You know, you get out of the uh, out of the elevator and there's, a, I don't know, a grocery store or a convenience store, whatever the case is. Uh, sounds like a pretty neat uh, project. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, there is some exciting news to talk about here in Hamilton because for the first time since the start of the pandemic, yes, a three-year wait 
Battlefield House and Museum will again host the reenactment of the Battle of Stony Creek. And here to talk about it is Brenda Branch, Marketing and Promotions Officer with the City of Hamilton. Brenda, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thanks. This is got to be tremendously exciting for your staff and, and the community. It really is. Um, it's been some time, um, as we all know, um, and things are really gearing up. We're in for a really great event this year. Um, public are going to see the same that they've seen in the past with encampment tours and museum and monument tours, 19th century merchants, musicians, singers, dancers, demonstrations, blacksmithing, flint napping, cooking, of course, battle reenactments, fireworks, food vendors, we have some new things in the lineup this year. We have a Haudenosaunee lacrosse uh, demonstration on the battlefield before both of the Saturday battle reenactments. That is pretty cool. And this happens June 3, 4? June 3rd and 4th, yes. Um, Saturday, 10 to 10, and on Sunday, 10 to 4.30. Uh, and I understand the Indigenous community is going to have a greater involvement this year. Why, why is that being done? Why is that important? Absolutely. You know, we have, we recognize the um, Indigenous communities' attachment to the site. Um, there's history there, Indigenous history there, um, everywhere for that matter. Um, and we wanted to encourage um, the community to engage more with the site and, of course, for the public to engage more with the event. Um, and the lacrosse piece is an interesting one because the um, Indigenous people um, have found alternative solutions to war through lacrosse. So there's history that they have solved conflict with lacrosse games. And this putting the lacrosse demonstration on the battlefield prior to the, the reenactments really bodes well um, with the communities. It sounds like it's going to be a more authentic, I guess, showcase. Absolutely, yes. Um, it's not just a lacrosse game. It's a narrated demonstration. Um, it includes singing and dancing and audience engagement. Um, we also have other um, Eagle Flight singers and dancers on Sunday as well. Um, so, yeah, we do have that Indigenous community engagement going on this year for the first time. Brenda Branch is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Brenda is a marketing and promotions officer with the city of Hamilton. We're talking about the return, finally, of the reenactment to the Battle of Stony Creek at Battlefield House and Museum June 3rd and 4th. Uh, in terms of cost, is it free to attend? Is there a cost? What, what's going on? It is free admission and has been such since the Canada 150 celebrations. Um, still free. There is uh, no parking on site. We'll be running constant shuttle bus service from public parking lots that are yet to be posted to the site that will be very shortly. Um, so watch the website, park in the off-site parking lots, and take the shuttle to the site. Very easy, very quick and easy. Have you heard from any of the reenactors? I would imagine they are tremendously excited to get back onto the field. Absolutely, yeah. We do have a number um, at our planning table, and we um, we have a call out now, and registrations are coming in steadily from the reenactor community, so we expect a really good turnout. Why do you think this is so popular with the public? I think perhaps because it is so unique and authentic. Um, we do our best to um, provide a authentic 19th century experience, um, and... I think it's really well done and has been for many years now. Um, and, yeah, I think it's the uniqueness, the community, um, being able to 
know, get into the encampments and, um, you know, interact with the reenactor community. Um, it's, it's very unique. It's also a good time for the public to get reacquainted with our city's, uh, you know, uh, uh, illustrious history with Battlefield House Museum and and the monument and get in tune with what happened so many years ago. So true. Absolutely true. Yes. Uh, in terms of volunteers, do you need people? Do you need more reenactors? Do you need people to, to help with uh, what is going to be going on? We do have a call for volunteers out. Um, it is on, there's an online registration application form on the website now. Um, the website for the event is hamilton.ca slash reenactment. From there, you can see the um, volunteer application call. And those applications are coming in steady as well. We do need about 100 volunteers um, to run the event. And um, we have... We usually have about 500 reenactors as well, and they're all volunteers as well. Wow, that is tremendous. Brenda, really mm. appreciate your time. Looking forward to this, this coming June 3rd and 4th. Uh, good luck. Thanks so much. That is Brenda Branch, Marketing and Promotions Officer with the City of Hamilton. Yes, the website, hamilton.ca slash reenactment. There's a, a map of what is going to be going down in and around Battlefield House uh, Museum, uh, where the pavilion is, all the encampments, uh, the battlefields. It, it, it is phenomenal to hear that this is coming back because it is truly one of the highlights of the spring-slash-summer events season. And, and let's not forget, this was a pivotal, pivotal battle in the War of 1812. Some say that the Battle of Stony Creek turned the tide and helped... Uh, Canada slash Britain beat the American forces. And uh, so it's 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 fun. It is exciting to see this coming back as well, you know, with hundreds of reenactors involved. And uh, especially if you're not having it for, th- for three years, uh, it's going to be great to have it back in the fold. So, uh, hey, check out the website, hamilton.ca slash reenactment. Uh, the reenactment of the Battle of Stony Creek, June 3rd and 4th, 10 to 10, on uh, the Saturday and 10 to 4 on the Sunday. It should be a lot of fun. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. How much do you love your job? Or maybe the question is, do you love your job? Or is it just okay? Or do you absolutely hate it and are looking to change gears? There's there's some of you out there right now thinking, got to go to work today. I don't really like my job. Others are thinking, oh, can't wait to get into the office or remote in and do what I got to do. Well, ADP Canada is out with its latest National Work Happiness Score. And uh, we as a nation registered a score of 6.6 out of 10, which actually is down 0.1 points from March. But in addition to that, the National Work Happiness Score shows that boomers, you boomers out there, you are the happiest at work. And Gen Z, well, you're at the other end of the scale. Holger Corman is the president of ADP Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Holger, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. How is this happiness score calculated? Well, we are going out on a monthly basis to provide a real-time pulse to uh, the nation of how the sentiment of our um, you know, citizens is really at work, and and uh, we are essentially asking, you know, the overall score: How happy are you at work? And uh, with that, 
wir getting a, a result back, which we call our overall happiness score as a benchmark. So we registered a 6.6 out of 10. Does that mean that Canadians overall are happy on the job? I would say so. It is uh, the uh, two-thirds of Canadians said that they are in general very happy with their work environment and their conditions. So I would say that's a reasonable expectation and uh, slightly down certainly from the months before, but I would say the vast majority of us still likes, like what they do. When it comes to the different age demographics, to, to no one's surprise really, uh, you know, boomers are at the top with a score of 7.3 out of 10, followed by Millennials, Gen X, Gen Z. Were there any surprises that you noticed in this month's calculations? I think the biggest uh, surprise here is probably the drop in the Gen Z category, which has a, a drop at 0.4%, which is uh, noticeably the largest decline in any of the age ranges. Um, and that's probably speaking to the continued um, desire uh, and pressures which are coming from you know, career opportunities and advancement and compensation and benefits, which are not rising as fast as uh, our up and risers in the workplace probably would like to see. Um, the BOMAs on the other end, you know, they're stable and steady. They're thriving off uh, factors which are work-life balance and flexibility. They are at the end of their career and feel more accomplished and settled. And therefore, we tend to see them more stable in their overall satisfaction. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Holger Korman, the president of ADP Canada. They're out with their latest national work happiness score. And it shows that we scored a 6.6 out of 10, which is down 0.1 points from March and boomers are the happiest Gen Z not so much what factors are at play when people are trying to determine whether or not they are happy at work well, it is it really overall, uh, it depends by, by, by age range a little bit, but, but people mostly look for is uh, work-life balance, uh, certainly, and then recognition and support. So also the, the, the largest driver of um, overall employment happiness. Now, that's differently weighted in, in the different uh, phases of your work career, um, but that's really what uh, overall the, the, the criteria will be. Uh, remote work, as we know, since the start of the pandemic, has really been uh, a popular option, not only for employees, but employers as well. How does that factor into this happiness score? Well, certainly it's a big driver for the work-life balance and flexibility. And uh, certainly some people have settled in in a way that, you know, the work from home permanent is a desired factor. Um, and the process, they like the hybrid, the often talked flex work model, which we see. And so it is it, it's certainly shifting the workers into different categories for those which want all the time office, all the time flexible, or all the time at home. And so we see certainly um, uh, the categorization of the yeah, work expectation is more individualized, and therefore the work-life balance flexibility is probably the largest driver of the overall work happiness. And that's even above and beyond what people are getting paid? Uh, it depends by age range, but certainly we see that the uh, compensation and benefit is a hygiene factor. It always lingers around there. You know, it is one of those uh, elements which is more important to younger people in their career as they start up and want to achieve and rise and have bills to pay and not so much savings. 
but it tapers down as they progress in the career. But in, for the younger generation, that's certainly a larger driver. We're talking with Holger Corman, president of ADP Canada on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Following ADP Canada's release of its latest national work happiness score, we have scored a 6.6 out of 10 in April, down just a, a smidge from March, which means we're generally happy uh, in our jobs. Uh, across the country, are we seeing differences between places like Ontario to the prairies or the East Coast? What are you uh, noticing? We do see quite a bit of range, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, so the top spot uh, this year, this, this particular month, uh, was taken by British Columbia and uh, Alberta, which are noticeably at, at the very top. And then Saskatoon and Manitoba uh, are coming in fairly low with a drop of 0.6. So quite a range. And, and particularly um, last month, we have seen uh, Quebec being at the very top of the mountain. So yeah, quite quite a range in terms of satisfaction and it seems like particularly the the, the west of Canada uh, seems to be more on the happier side of things uh, these days. Very interesting. Holger, I uh, hope you have a happy day at work today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Holger Corman is the president of ADP Canada. Yeah, boomers scoring a 7.3 out of 10. You boomers, you're happy. You're happy on the job, the happiest by far, because millennials are next at 6.6 uh, out of 10, which is basically the the overall score that we're getting. Uh, Gen X close behind at 6.5, and then Gen Z at 6.4, a drop, and the biggest drop, of 0.4 month over month. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. He landed to Jordana with a shot, and scores! Alex Kerfoot's overtime goal on ESPN on Monday gave the Leafs a 5-4 win and a 3-1 lead over Tampa Bay in their first-round Stanley Cup playoff series. And it offers Toronto yet another chance to win its first playoff series since 2004 tonight when they host the Lightning. The question is, will tonight be the night or are Leafs fans preparing to witness yet another epic collapse. David Alter is a Maple Leafs reporter with SI.com and host of the Rinkwide Toronto podcast and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. David, good morning. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great, Rick. I apologize. I'm just walking on my way to work right now and I I'm walking by a construction site, so hopefully you can hear me loud and clear. Yeah, we can hear you loud and clear, and uh, it, it's a good metaphor for the Leafs trying to co- trying to construct a playoff series win. And you know, it's it's gone well thus far. They lost the opening game, but they've won three in a row the past two in overtime in Tampa. Um, I got to say, Toronto's confidence has been sky sky high going into this game, but. You know, they've been in this position before, David, and, and they've not sealed the deal. Uh, all Leafs fans are asking is, is tonight going to be the night? What is your sense? Yeah, it's really hard to say because you should feel really good about the fact that Toronto is up 3-1 in this series. I didn't think I would be waking up this morning two weeks ago thinking that Toronto had the chance to be the first team to advance in the second round. Like, there, it was 50-50 for them at this point to still advance and then you also have the fact that the other teams before them haven't advanced yet. So Toronto could be the first one in the second round if they get the job done tonight. And so uh, there are reasons to feel optimistic. The fact that they haven't played their best hockey, that they were able to steal a couple of wins on the road, really did steal them. They didn't seem like the better team for both of those games. But that also offers some pessimism 
that maybe eventually it's going to come back against them. I don't know. It's why they play the games. It's really a strange circumstance for them to find themselves up 3-1 against a three-time consecutive Stanley Cup finalist. So uh, all of that bodes well for the Maple Leafs, but pessimism among Leaf fans still rules given their previous history. So that's something to consider. Not only were many fans, Leafs and others, uh, thinking that this Toronto team would be up 3-1 against Tampa, a an extremely great opponent who, you can make the argument, Tampa should be up 3-1 to the way they've played in this series, but not many people would have predicted that Ilya Samsonov would be outplaying Andre Vasilevsky, and that is a huge part of why Toronto is up 3-1. to It really is, and so Ilya Samsonov really just stole out the starter job based on performance, but also based on availability. Remember, he joined the Maple Leafs two days after Matt Murray came over to this team, and uh, it was just a matter of who was going to be the starter and who was going to be available, and Samsonov just kind of took the role, and he's kind of gone with it. You know, he was discarded in Washington, uh, signed a one-year bet on himself, deal with the Capitals. The Leafs still retain his rights should they want to keep him here long-term, and uh, he stole them about half a game on the road when it was uh, early on in that game three, he was the one who, who kind of kept it in there. So that's goaltending the Leafs haven't really had in their previous playoff years. They've had good goaltending in the regular season, but they haven't had goalies that can steal you games since maybe at Belfort. So, or even James Reimer before that in 2013, he stole a couple uh, Leafs weren't supposed to get to game seven, but that's not what everyone remembers about that series. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting situation that Samsonov has been better than Andre Vasilevsky, but that also brings some pessimism that you probably haven't seen Vasilevsky's best game, and he's probably going to bring it tonight. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt that uh, as well. Uh, we got 45 seconds. Uh, much has been made about the core four and their past playoff failures. Uh, but Mitch Marner has 10 points. Uh, Neil Andrew Matthews both with seven. Uh, John Tavares had a big hat trick in game two. Safe to say that collectively, this has been their best playoff series. Yeah, it really has. And uh, I would even throw Morgan Riley into that because he is the longest tenured Maple Leafs. And he is he went through so much criticism during the regular season about if the Leafs were even better with or without him. He really put that to bed uh, with the key goals that he's been able to score, the offense that he's been able to provide on the back end, and really just kind of shut that narrative way down. And the Leafs are not in this Game 4 situation had it not been for Morgan Riley's uh, uh, clutch timing of goals and assists that he's been able to do in this series so far. Absolutely. David, appreciate the time. Enjoy the game tonight. Bye. Right, thank you, Rick. That is uh, David Alter. He is a Leafs reporter with SI.com and host of the Rink-Wide Toronto podcast. Tonight just might be the night for the Maple Leafs. We shall see, uh, and we will see uh, later on tonight, whether they can get the job done. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.